0: Hello and welcome to the Gender and Development podcast brought to you by the Gender and Development Journal. Gender and Development provides a forum for dialogue for the whole development sector where feminists can be critical of international development, share learning and present feminist alternatives. I'm Liz Cook, Gender and Development's Assistant Editor, and I'll be hosting this first episode. Recently, the journal celebrated a big birthday. We were 25. And to celebrate, we focused an issue on the subject of feminist research, which was co-edited with Lata Narayana Swamy and Katie Jenkins of the Women in Development Study Group of the UK Development Studies Association. Today, we're going to be talking to three people who contributed to this issue of gender and development. And just to say, they're all dialing in from their respective locations. So we hope you'll bear with us if there are any little glitches uh, with the sound as we talk. First of all, we have with us Michelle Lockhart. Michelle is a research fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in the UK, and Michelle has undertaken feminist research with Syrian refugees. Hello, Michelle.
1: Thanks, Liz. It's great to be here today.
0: Also with us is Myrna Guha, who is senior lecturer in sociology at Anglia Ruskin University in the UK. In her article, Myrna reflects on carrying out feminist research with former and current sex workers in eastern India. Hi, Myrna. Hi, Liz. Hi, everyone. It's lovely to be here today. And last but not least, we have Shian Warner, who is based in Dili in Timor-Leste. And Shian is the research and program coordinator at the Equality Institute. In the article that Shian and her uh, co-authors contributed, they look at applying feminist research principles in large scale quantitative research into violence against women and girls. Hello, Shian.
2: Hi, Liz. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, welcome to you all and thank you so much for joining me. And the first thing I want to ask you all is what does feminist research mean to you? Why is it so important? Michelle, if we can start with you.
1: For me, feminist research looks at challenging power hierarchies that negatively affect the lives of women and girls. In the context of development and humanitarian work, this means power hierarchies often between multiple stakeholders, the organization itself, communities, field staff, translators, and these power hierarchies extend across multiple levels. These power hierarchies are present in research as well as in the regular monitoring and evaluation practices of organizations. What I found in my work is that incorporating a feminist lens is important because research can often be quite a disempowering process. From the development of the research questions to whose voices are heard to who is deemed a key informant um, and even to how the time or the other priorities of participants is respected and how we feed back on the results of, of data collection. Many of these examples are just about good practice on research and monitoring and evaluation generally, but to me, a feminist lens offers useful ways of addressing these gaps around power, irrespective of the subject matter of the research. Across the research process, for me being feminist in how we do research means being participatory, so allowing the voices and the knowledge of communities to be heard. It means thinking about reciprocity and how the research is going to bring benefit to participants instead of us just taking their data without them receiving anything in return. It means being aware of power and positionality of those conducting the research, so how our own racial background and class and education might affect the research process and the assumptions we make and the questions we ask. And then most importantly, I think feminist research involves ensuring that the research is able to bring real benefit to the lives of women and girls.
0: Thank you, Michelle. Now, Myrna, I'll ask you, what does feminist research mean to you and why is it so important? So feminist research
3: for me is research based on feminist principles. This involves four key things. The first is doing research which privileges and begins with the experiences of women and other marginalized communities. Secondly, it's about adopting research methodologies and approaches which actively work to address power hierarchies between the researcher and the researched. Thirdly, it's about selecting topics that are shrouded in political, cultural and social silence. And finally, it's about seeking to break that silence through the dissemination of research findings. Overall, feminist research challenges inequalities in societies and recognizes that these inequalities exist due to the ways in which gender intersects with caste, class, ethnicity, race, religion and so on. So feminist research is important because to do feminist research is to do the work of unsettling status quo by questioning norms, by seeing the world like a feminist, as Nivedita Menon says, and by being, in Sarah Ahmed's words, a feminist killjoy.
0: Thanks, Myrna and Shion. What does feminist research mean to you and why is it important?
2: So for me, feminist research is research that makes positive changes in social and political power dynamics to make the world a more equitable and respectful space. In our our article, we outline principles we've adapted from the International Women's Development Agency research framework, which actually touch on several of the points raised by Myrna and Michelle just now. So that research should have ethical standards and do no harm. That it should be collaborative and participatory, building on the strengths of local partners and valuing local knowledge. It should aim to transform unequal gender power structures and shift social norms. It should acknowledge and aim to address multiple and overlapping forms of power imbalance, not just gender, but disability, race, colonization, sexual orientation, etc., It should also be accountable to the local community and continually critically reflective on that, and that the research findings should be freely shared and in an accessible way. And for me personally, as I'm actually usually involved in directly training the researchers in the different countries where we conduct studies, a key aspect of feminist research is also that it contributes to, rather than takes away from local communities where the research is conducted. So for example, whatever the research findings might be, I want to make sure that I've supported a group of people from that community, and particularly women, to gain new skills in approaching respondents, conducting interviews, or using technology, as well as thinking critically about gendered power dynamics. And these skills, and hopefully the confidence that they gain through the research process, are tools that can help them in future endeavors in their lives. So I think that it's really important for research to be feminist because the alternative, if it's not done in a feminist way, it really risks reinforcing those unequal power dynamics that all of us are working so hard to address.
0: Thanks, Sian. Now, Michelle and Myrna, you've researched in very different contexts and on different aspects of women's and girls' lives. Michelle, can you tell us a bit about what the research was, what the context was, what you needed to find out and what kind of techniques and strategies you used?
1: I conducted doctoral research in Jordan, um, where I also worked previously as part of the Syria response I had previously worked in different settings as a gender advisor, program manager and a consultant on gender equality and women's empowerment issues. And I became curious about some of these narratives about gender equality and women's empowerment within NGOs, Um, these often quite pervasive narratives, for example, about the power of a girl in changing the life of her family, about oppressive fathers who force their daughters into marriage and about displacement being a space where changes occur in gender norms and relations. In the context of the Syria response, there have been a huge amount um, of reports on gender issues and the types of changes that women and girls experience, which are then often attributed to displacement in what I felt was sometimes dehistoricized way without much context or historical analysis. These are often quite fixed narratives, for example, about soaring domestic violence, increased child marriage, women and girls harassed in host countries and women who had apparently never worked in Syria suddenly shouldering the economic burdens for the family in host countries. And so I wanted to understand and explore these narratives a little bit more. I was interested in the idea of change and I wanted to be able to position gender norms in a historical context to have a broader and a deeper picture of people's lives before displacement in order to understand their experiences during displacement. So in order to do this, I conducted research from 2016 to 2017 with Syrian refugees, both male and female. These refugees lived in three cities in Jordan, and they were self-settled refugees, so they lived outside of camps. I conducted ethnographic research, and it involved multiple methods. I used participatory photography as um, sort of the starting point to my research. Um, And this was done through workshops that provided refugees opportunities to talk about their lives using photography. It was a different way of producing knowledge. And this had focus group discussions built into the um, photography activity um, to allow that discussion and people's day-to-day experiences to be discussed. I also conducted semi-structured interviews life story interviews and these life story interviews were longer um, more open-ended interviews that took place over a longer time period they allowed people really a lot of freedom to share stories about their lives with less structure they could pick and choose what they wanted to talk about and i really provided quite um, little guidance i also conducted practitioner interviews um, and participant observation
0: great thank you michelle Um, Myrna, can you answer the same questions? You were in a very different reality in your research context.
3: Yes, so my doctoral research, which I undertook between 2013 and 2017 um, at the School of International Development, University of East Anglia, it's a study of the lives of peri-urban and rural women actively and formally in sex work in eastern India. Specifically, it explored their experiences of everyday violence, and it looked at how these experiences affected their engagement with sex work, and how these women negotiated experiences of everyday violence in their lives. So, contextually, sex work remains one of the most contentious and polarizing topics within feminist debates and discussions. The infamous sex wars among libertarian and radical feminists in the second wave has resurfaced in the form of feminist debates between contemporary abolitionists who argue that sex work is violence and needs to be abolished, and pro-sex work feminists who argue that sex work is a choice and can even be empowerment if harms within sex work are addressed. Development interventions which engage with sex workers tend to draw on either or some variation of these binary-led positions. I should mention here that My own work experience in India, prior to pursuing my PhD research in the UK, involved work with grassroots anti-trafficking interventions. So I'd seen this binary and its variations enacted on the ground. What this binary tends to do is it tends to exceptionalize lives in sex work and frames experiences as either those of active agency or passive victimhood, and I was keen to move away from this binary in my research. So, my strategy to move beyond these binaries was to stay open-ended as a researcher and not to have an objective for what I should be looking for. I conducted participant observation within red light areas and lived in an anti-trafficking shelter in the city of Kolkata, and I visited rural communities in southern West Bengal. Across these sites, I conducted life history interviews with full and part-time sex workers, women who had been rescued from sex work, both in keeping with and against their wishes, and women who had returned to their homes in rural communities after leaving sex work under varying circumstances. These methods allowed the theme of everyday violence to emerge from the data and showed commonalities across experiences of women formally and actively in sex work in eastern India. It also allowed the women to set the agenda for what they wanted to talk about, and as I discussed in the article, it opened up a space for dynamism and fluidity in experiences to emerge. So it highlighted how in their lives agency and victimhood coexisted and violence in sex work was connected to and lay in a spectrum of everyday forms of gendered violence within social relations. And these everyday forms of gendered violence in social relations drove entry into sex work, affected experiences within sex work and persisted even after the women left sex work, often driving re-entry into sex work.
0: Thanks, Myrna. Um, Now, Michelle, I wanted to ask, were there any specific challenges that you think pursuing a feminist approach in your research threw up?
1: Yes, definitely. I think there were quite a few challenges that I faced. Um, Firstly, I think uh, a challenge around how I as a researcher, how I ask questions and how I make sense of the data that is collected, Feminist research would say that we privilege the voices and the experiences of women and girls, we value their knowledge. And this means not flattening experiences into simpler generalized statements that can easily translate to policy recommendations, but actually recognizing complexity and drawing attention to the contradictions, the nuances, and the fact that people's experiences are not always so easily explained. And I do talk about this um, in my article in the journal. It was challenging to take this approach because it sometimes means having sort of less straightforward answers. In my research, I tried to ask open questions and to avoid confirmation bias. So not just collecting data to validate what I think I already know about this community. I also strived when presenting the data to use the actual words said by participants, not just summarizing and generalizing, but drawing attention to intersectionality and how class, ethnicity, geographical location might affect people's experience. Um, And I think also in that, comes this idea of also not being afraid to say, you know, this is a really complex issue and it's difficult to address. Um, I think sometimes as researchers and especially in the policy space, there's so much pressure to come up with recommendations. And this means we should do this. Um, Whereas I think being feminist also means acknowledging that complexity. Secondly, um, for me, it's a challenge to balance the practical need to gather information versus some of these feminist ideas around showing solidarity and compassion and humanity to people who are suffering. A lot of the interviews I did with practitioners reflected this idea that the humanity behind humanitarianism has somehow slipped from focus. And so I wanted to focus on this more in how I engage with communities, but it wasn't easy. I think there's often pressure when conducting research to do X number of interviews to answer the research questions. But as a doctoral researcher, I face perhaps less pressure than in an NGO where there's often quite limited timeframes to collect as much data as possible. And I think in this process, um, for me, it was about thinking through what does it mean to hold that need for data intention with being a good listener, um, not there to sort of be an investigator. You know, Lisa Melkey talks about this. We're not there to sort of uncover um, and investigate like a detective, but actually allowing people to reveal what they want to reveal. Um, And so for me, it was about bearing witness to people suffering in a way that's active and not in a way that's there as if watching a spectacle. I think sometimes people can get into this habit of talking about, you know, going to see the refugees or see the camp, And I think countering that with what it means to actually see the issues and be able to respond to need and it becomes then a practical, not just an ethereal concept of showing solidarity. Sometimes feminist research might mean that your research aims might be sidelined because the main concern of the person you're speaking to is why their claim for medical assistance was rejected by an NGO. And so getting on the phone and trying to help might be the most useful thing you can do instead of getting through the list of questions. Um, And so I think that is a a challenge, bringing the humanity and the relationality back into the research process.
0: Myrna, how about you? Did you have any moments of particular panic or uh, insights or light bulb moments?
3: So certainly there were a few of these instances and I'll share some of them with you. So as I write about in the article, adopting a feminist approach meant listening to my respondents when they established boundaries during fieldwork. And it meant a recognition of the fact that power relations between I, as a middle-class, upper-caste researcher who lives and works abroad, and a peri-urban or rural woman engaged in sex work, these power relations could never be flattened. This had a strong impact on my fieldwork. Uh, And an example of this is that I did have access to speak to women living in a red light area in the evening, which is their peak soliciting hours. No doubt this would have generated rich and interesting data. However, based on my experiences in the field during the day and conversations with women living in the red light area, it was clear that my presence as a 20-something middle class woman in the red light area would distract customers and draw attention away from the women themselves. It would require them to keep me safe or turn interested customers away by explaining who I was, which had already happened once or twice during the day, and it was evident that this would happen a lot in the evenings." This would place the burden of emotional work, of managing my presence in the field on my key informants and respondents, and I chose not to put this burden on them by limiting fieldwork to the day. I also chose not to take any photographs of the women and their surroundings. Um, This is a decision which, as I explain in the article, has been challenged by scholars, particularly in the field of visual sociology. This decision was taken owing to the proliferation of decontextualized images of women in red light areas where these women are captured and presented in images as subjects to be pitied and saved. I wanted to move away from this attempt to freeze their whole complex, messy, dynamic lives into one single image in one single location, which then leads to assumptions regarding victimhood and agency and exceptionalizes their lives in sex work. One aspect of my fieldwork that did cause a certain level of panic was determining how far I should go to intervene in the lives of my respondents. For example, during fieldwork in Shonagachi, which is um, a red light area in the northern part of the city of Kolkata, there was a brothel raid in a household where I'd been spending a lot of time. The lives of the women in the household were disrupted as a result of the raid, and one young woman was arrested for attempting to protect another woman from the police. When I heard about what happened, I was confronted with a choice. Should I get involved and should I push the organization that had initially provided me access to the field to help her? Or should I remain in the position of a researcher seeking knowledge passively but not getting involved? And then the question that arose was that, is that even possible? As Anne Oakley writes, feminist research is inherently messy. It disrupts the mythology of hygienic research. It is about recognising that while on the field, you need to trust your instincts about what feels right to do, to stand up for the marginalised communities you are researching and to be a good ally.
0: Thanks, Myrna. Now, shion to turn to you, you did something a bit different in your contribution to the journal. Um, you're interested in using statistics and figures about violence against women to convince the world's policymakers to tackle the issue. Can you give me uh, an example of how feminists are using figures and data to get real change for women and girls survivors of gender-based violence?
2: Sure. To take a few examples, the World Health Organization multi-country study in Kiribati and Solomon Islands played a huge role in providing the advocacy push needed to get domestic violence legislation passed in those countries. And I recently spoke to a service provider in Solomon Islands who told me that that violence against women prevalence study there totally changed everything. So from boosting public awareness, increasing the number of programs on this issue, and also the number of different types of actors who were taking responsibility for the issue of violence against women and girls. Similarly, in Timor-Leste, the results from the Asia Foundation's Nabilan baseline study helped to inform the design of the country's national action plan on gender-based violence, as well as also providing a roadmap for the Nabilan program itself, which was the original intention of the research. Specifically, the research found that the justifications for violence against women and girls were being upheld by both men and women. And so the program made sure that activities and messages promoting respectful and nonviolent relationships were involving and also aimed at men and women and whole communities. If we take a bigger picture view, 30 years ago, there was almost no quantitative data at all on violence against women and girls. And now, thankfully, we have a lot. If we look over the recent years, for example, at the Sustainable Development Goals, violence against women and girls is now on an agenda, on the agenda in a way like it never has been before. And this is really due in a very large part to that feminist research and the data that they have collected to, pro- to prove the immense scale and impact and cost of violence against women and girls. So this type of research has been absolutely instrumental in getting funding for this issue and also getting it on the global agenda. Now we're actually seeing some increased funding on violence against women and girls globally, but recent feminist research is showing that this funding isn't actually being channeled into the right places. So not enough money is going to feminist organizations. Because of the collection of this data on funding patterns, we're actually now seeing calls for a recentering of women and girls' voices in violence against women and girls' work, and a push to direct more funding towards feminist movements, which, as the data illustrates, should actually be a much more effective and sustainable approach to ending violence against women and girls in a nutshell, both at the country level and also globally, the past few decades have really illustrated that feminist data does have uh, an immense impact.
0: Sian, one of the key insights from your article is making sure research actually changes women's and girls' lives. Could you tell me something about the challenges of ensuring research actually gets
2: off the shelves and has influence in the world? The reality is that us researchers haven't historically been Trained to communicate to non-academics and by the same token donors often don't include diverse communications approaches in their terms of reference. However, effective communications actually takes a lot of planning and investment right from the outset. So that's why as an organization the Equality Institute tries to integrate creative communications into all the research and policy work that we do throughout the whole process. In this, it's really key to communicate in an accessible and usable way. So this includes writing research in a language that is clear and not overly academic, developing lots of infographics and other visual tools to further explain the research findings, and also producing multiple types of knowledge products and ways of communicating that are tailored specifically to users. It's also important to keep in mind translation into different languages and Of course, the simpler and clearer the wording in the original, the easier it will be to translate without losing or changing the meaning. Although quantitative research is often written as a bunch of percentages, focusing on human-centred stories alongside the numbers is often crucial to inspiring people to take action. There's also sometimes an assumption that you can communicate in the same way to different people but the way you influence different actors is actually very different. The truth of the matter is that most people probably won't read a whole report, even if as researchers, we've poured our hearts and souls into writing it. So while a few academics might appreciate a detailed report, you're probably better off holding a face-to-face meeting with government officials to discuss the findings as they're relevant to their specific area of policy interest, Or you might want to integrate the findings into a training or presentation for program staff. At the same time, you might want to work with local artists to paint street art, promoting positive messages to spark public discussion on key social norms found by the research. And you might then need to present the findings at a regional or international conference to to garner further reaching donor interest in the issue. In each of these approaches, it's really important to be very clear about what action you want the different people to take. It's also really important to communicate back to the people who were involved in the research. This is so crucial because every time I've done a validation process with the community, it has filled in gaps in the analysis that we, the researchers, missed or has highlighted potential political sensitivities around different findings which we were unaware of because we didn't have that contextual knowledge. More broadly, a feminist approach to research requires funders to understand that this actually costs additional money and time, and that needs to be properly budgeted for. Essentially, as all of us said at the beginning of this discussion, we do feminist research to make positive change. So it's really key to plan from the start for all of these points I've mentioned to help ensure that your research does make a difference and doesn't just sit on a shelf gathering dust. Thanks Sean, and thanks all of you for
0: talking to us about your work and for giving us a real insight into what putting a feminist research agenda into practice actually looks like. Now before we finish I think it would be good to hear from each of you about what you're working on now. As feminist researchers what's next? Michelle, let's start with you.
1: Thanks, Liz. Um, So at the moment, I am continuing to publish articles based on my PhD. Um, I'm working in my work at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I'm working on social norms and helping NGOs to conduct research on norms around intimate partner violence and child marriage. So we have a few new research projects um, on these topics. I'm working on those at the moment.
3: That's great. And Myrna? So currently in my position as Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, I teach feminist research methodologies and methods and I supervise postgraduate research projects which draw on feminist approaches. I'm continuing to publish for my PhD research with the aim to convert my thesis into a book over the next couple of years. I'm also collaborating on a Global Challenges Research Fund project which is funded by goldsmiths university of london and this project is on gender inequalities in informal urban housing in india through this project we are partnering with universities and ngos in india to explore issues around violence citizenship marriages tenancy rights for socioeconomically disadvantaged women living in informal settlements across indian cities
2: and shion what's the future looking like for you so we're continuing our ongoing involvement in Sasa evaluations in three countries. We're also organizing a study tour for government representatives from the lower and middle income countries to go to Australia to learn about Victoria's whole of government approach on preventing violence against women and girls. And of course, we're continuing to keep up our evidence-based social norms change communication on social media.
0: Thanks. I'd like to thank Michelle, Myrna and Sian for making the time to be with us today and sharing their experiences and insights. I think you'll all agree as it's been thought provoking and fascinating to listen to. And I hope it will have prompted some of you to engage further with the area of feminist research. If you'd like to read Michelle, Myrna and Shian's articles, you can do so via the Gender and Development website, www.genderanddevelopment.org, where you'll also find more information on the feminist values in research issue of the journal on which this podcast has been based. And don't forget, Oxfam and our publisher, Routledge, Taylor and Francis, make all articles free to read for activists. Again, you can find out more about this on our website. And that's it for this episode. Please do subscribe to the Gender and Development podcast via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to ensure that you're with us next time. And our next podcast is out in May when we'll be talking about the 25th anniversary of the 1995 UN Women's Conference in Beijing. Do join us then. And in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. and Goodbye.